0: All right, and let the spirit be upon the people, so that we can all move together.
1: Let's put our hands together, people, and let's go. Whoop, whoop,
0: whoop, whoop, Welcome to Living Legacies, a podcast that celebrates the voices and stories of individuals around the Pacific Northwest, produced by Northwest Folklife and Jack Straw Cultural Center. In celebration of 50 years of Northwest Folklife, the Living Legacies series honors local culture bearers who inspire and perpetuate arts, culture and traditions. Here is your host, Kelly Ferriar, Executive Artistic Director at Northwest Folklife.
2: Today we'll be speaking with Draze, born Dume Morari Jr. Draze is a Zimbabwean American hip-hop artist based in Seattle and Los Angeles. Dres grew up in the Central District neighborhood of Seattle, where he fell in love with hip-hop music. He is the son of one of Zimbabwe's greatest Mbira musicians, Dumasame Merere, who was the principal importer of Shona musical culture to the United States in the 1970s and 80s. Dres has gained popularity in the United States with his songs Seattle Sweetie and Irony on 23rd and continues to share the Shona music culture through his music today. Dumi, thank you so much for joining us for our Living Legacies podcasts as we look into celebrating 50 years of folk life. Um, It's a big number. It's the big 5-0. And so it's lovely having you joining us here today to talk a bit about the legacy
1: that you carry and that you are propelling forward. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. As you know, folk life has been a part of my family all of my life. So, <laughs> because of that, when you say 50 years, that's longer than I've been alive, and I have been performing in it as long as I can recall. So, um, this is dope to be here.
2: Tell us a bit more about, as you reflect back to some of your, your first performances, some of your first time, uh, whether that be at folk or or at other different events or gatherings, how old were you when you first remembered singing and picking up an instrument and gathering around with the family?
1: Wow. (laughs) Well, for those who don't know, I come from a Zimbabwean family. My mother and father. Father, Dumisani Madaire Sr. I am his junior. And then um, my mother, Laura or Sally Grace, Chocolate Brown Baby, Sukutai Dai. That is all of those are my mother's names. (laughs) And so um, as a child, I remember literally growing up in the home and that's all we did sitting around at home singing songs. Um, My mother taught classes at Langston Hughes Cultural Arts Center. So I was always there. She's teaching classes. I'm right there listening to them singing. I'm joining in on the singing. So singing and um, being around the music literally was a part of my life. It wasn't like something you went to do just at a performance. It was a part of the lifestyle. My mom said, if you can talk, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. And she literally meant that. And so as a child, while other people might be learning other things, I was learning how to harmonize. My mom was so sincere about you're gonna know how to, she'd give everyone a note. She'd go around the room, give everybody a note, and you better hold your note, you know what I mean? And if you slide off the note, she'll stop the whole song, come right back to you and tell you get to your note, right? Like stay on your note. And so those are the things that I kind of grew up doing. And then actual performances, I think they went hand in hand because my father had a marimba group. My mother had an inbita group when I was younger called Gwinyai. Um, and then she also had a marimba group called Sukutai. My father had Mananzi. And so I remember being at my dad's shows. I'm at some place around the University of Washington, and it's this packed room. Everybody's sweating. Bunch of hippies, man. You know what I mean? It stinks in there. Nobody's got deodorant on. They're dancing around They're, You know what I mean? And I mean, everyone's just going for it. My dad's on stage. He's sweating from head to toe. He's gonna hug me after I don't wanna hug. You're sweating. You know what I mean? You look like you just ran four quarters like LeBron James or something, right? But um as a little kid, I just remember being on the side of the stage, looking up, seeing them dancing on the side of the stage. You know what I mean? And it was all love, like, you know, so um those are my real earliest memories of the music.
2: I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your father, Dumasani. And I know he brought over a lot of that genre, spirit and culture and music, specifically to the Pacific Northwest. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that, about
1: that story. So my father came over to America, like late 60s, early 70s, and he was a teacher. I think, at heart. I don't know if he was more musician or more teacher, to be honest with you. He's such a phenomenal teacher. He was passionate about it. And when he came to Washington, he sparked a movement. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you come from Zimbabwe and Southern Africa, come all the way to America. You land in the Northwest. And by the time I'm born, there's people everywhere playing marimbas, right? There's people playing Embidas. There's people who are into this movement. And I don't quite understand at that point that he's the spark that kind of lights this entire flame. But as you get older, you're like, oh, so you did this? Like, (laughs) wow, right? You don't even realize how courageous it is because you're standing in the midst of the movement rather than at the beginning. But he came over, he started teaching classes. He also taught at the University of Washington, the ethnomusicology department, and he taught Shona culture, Zimbabwean culture. He's taught the songs, the music, the dance, the drumming. He wasn't a great drummer. People think he was. He really wasn't. Um, you know, I'm a better drummer than he is. That's about all I'm better at than him. That and rapping, right? He don't want it with rapping, but beyond that, but he was just such a phenomenal teacher. And so he started several groups And then it sparked a movement where now there's the Zimbabwe Music Festival that really spans. I've been to Zimbabwe Music Festivals in Denver, Colorado. Like, yo, there are marimba groups in Denver, Colorado because of this movement that my father started. So now it spans really across the country. People who love Shona culture, Shona music. um, And he's credited with bringing that to America as a whole. It's amazing. And if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your mom. My mother was actually my teacher. So my father was a teacher. My mother Mm -hmm. was my teacher. My father, I think, more perfected us. He did not believe that we could play marimbas. A lot of people don't know this. He did not believe in kids playing. He Mm. was very strict, very stern. And what I mean by that is he didn't really take it serious on that level of like, Y'all are going to be serious players, right? But my mother is stubborn and she had a vision. and She had a belief and she taught her children how to play. Um, that being uh, my older brother, Tendai, my sister, Danai, and myself, Dumi, who was the youngest. And so interestingly enough, when I say that, I wasn't very good at playing Marimbas. Everyone else was really good. Tendai was, was phenomenal. It was like, He started playing at 18 months old. The story has, it's like a legend there at at a marimba practice and he just stands up, walks over, gets on the marimbas and just starts playing. And the whole class is shocked. Like, like, yo, how did they do this? And he knows the parts and he's, you know what I mean? Um, Always had that. Danai wasn't, quite as magical right but she was amazing had an amazing ear beautiful harmonies my the, my favorite harmonizer in the world to me is my sister she can find you harmonies that you would not know go with any song um i'm the baby wasn't very good <laughs> at any of it um i remember bringing that marimba practices let's say i'm about Seven at this point. So, this might sound a little harsh to someone, but by seven in our family, you should be rolling. Right? <laughs> you should be playing all of the instruments. And I remember being in practices and just struggling. I just couldn't pick up the parts. And I didn't know this as I got older. My mom told me later that no one wanted me to play. Her friends, people in the group, there were adults. Most of the people were all like, look, this kid's never going to get it. It's okay. (laughs) Accept it, right? Like you got one that's not going to be a marimba player. That's okay. Find something else he's good at. Right. And that just wasn't going to work for mom, not for Laura Lou. And Mm -hmm. she, she stayed on me. She put hours in, she put time in and I am eternally grateful. I tried to quit a thousand times. She wouldn't let me. And thank God she did. Because pardon my French, I'm a damn good marimba player now. (laughs) So I owe that all to my mom. I would honestly say I'm one of the best players in the world, right? And that comes because I had a mother who believed in something in myself and taught me to trust myself.
2: I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your music and how in that kind of tree coming from all of what your mom and all of the influence from your father and your family, moving into that place where you begin kind of finding your own voice in that and sharing a bit about that story, about your your spot in that tree.
1: Wow, that maturation takes a long time as Any human being who's in touch with themselves knows, I don't care who you are, you live any lifestyle, you're going to come out of it with some trauma, right? So there, I mean, you know, as parents, I'm a father. My wife and I are waiting on the day that our daughter looks at us and goes, you did this to me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, right? Like either I hugged you too much or I didn't hug you enough, right? You know what I mean? Um, You wanted Sour Patch Kids and I went with the Swedish Fish. I don't know, right? It's always something. And and the Swedish Fish meant so much to you at that time. But for me growing up, like I said, I was the youngest. I wasn't necessarily always feeling like the best guy at anything. Um, My rap career started when I was younger. I was I probably started rapping when I was about the fourth or fifth grade. And I was really bad, uh, which is seems to be a theme here. Right. So I was really bad. Both of my brothers who were older. There was one um, Christopher. We call him Too Fresh. And then Tendai at the time, we were calling him Boy Wonder. And so the two of them were were much better than me. And I looked up to them and uh, when I started rapping, they both told me, Ah, like, hang it up, dude. You're just, you don't got it. It's not going to be good. But this is the one time where no one had to tell me anything deep down inside of myself. I knew there was something. I don't know how I knew. I just couldn't get the words to come together right. But I knew, I'm like, Yo, I see something. Like, I don't even know what I saw. I just knew I saw it. And so at some point, I want to say by the time I was in the, eighth grade, I was starting to get decent, right? I'm like, oh, I'm getting really, really good, right? I'm getting okay here. They're both still better than me. By ninth grade, I'm better than both of them. It's not close. Everyone knows it. No one will say it, right? But it took me a while to find my voice because you have this duality happening as a black African in America, Right. It's very different than just being a descendant of a slave. Right. Who are still my brothers and sisters. But I remember being on buses on my way, going with kids and telling them you're from Africa. When I was in like the third grade, I'm talking to other black kids like, yo, we're from African. And they're like, I'm not from Africa. You're from Africa, you African booty scratcher. Right. That was my first time ever hearing that word. Right. Right. And it was about me. And I'm like, well, what, you know, and so it became this, those experiences created complexes in your brain because you want to fit in. You're a kid. My mom has no idea these things are happening. How could she? This happens on the school bus. This happens on the playground for a minute. So as a child, you safely conceal it. You keep moving, but it becomes this identity issue because how do you embrace everything that's a part of you? these things that you love musically. There were times we had to perform At I remember performing at the Black Community Festival, which is currently called the Emoja Fest. And at the time we're there to perform, I'm furious. I don't want to get on this stage. I don't want to put on this African outfit and perform in front of these people because I felt shame. I've been told things that made me feel bad, right? Now, was there a fair amount of love? Absolutely was there much more love than 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 self-hate? Absolutely. Did I have an ability to look at those young people at the time and go this is not you. This is indicative of what was done to you? I actually did. And that's the only thing that kept me going. I don't know how I had that. I know my mom gave me a lot of education, my father as well. For whatever reason I was able to look and go man, you're only saying that because of what was done to you and you don't even know how to love yourself you know what i mean and that happens over and over well that plays into your music career right as i'm writing music i'm searching for identity i had to earn the willingness to accept that do me that's who you are
2: I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about specifically the Central District and your neighborhood and the inspiration and where you were at coming through with some of those songs. I know you just touched on it a little bit, but I'm
1: hoping that you can share a little bit more. So I put out the thing the same as something for the Seattle Center. The Space Needle was turning 50, I believe it was at the time. And they wanted some music and they had a bunch of artists, I want to say like 70 artists contribute music to this massive like online gifting of music. So I gave them that song. And then the song just took on a life of its own. When I wrote that song, I was in a CD. I was going to go to Kirkland, but it was traffic and, you know, Seattle traffic. I'm like, I'm not going 520 or I-90 in the middle of this traffic. I'm good. I'll chill out. And so I sat there and I was like, well, let me go to somebody's. I'm going to go to so-and-so's house. And I was like, oh, wait, they don't live there anymore. And I was like, let me go to so-and-so's house. It's like, man, they don't live. They live. They moved all the way out to Renton. And then it was like, all right, well, let me go over to Helen's. And I'm like, Helen's isn't there. And I found myself looking and going, man, I mean, there's a whole lot of options that were once on the table that are just gone. And that sparked the statement, the hood ain't the same. Right, all of a sudden I'm like, this place isn't feeling like what it once felt like. It's not what it once was. I remember a time in the CD where you could just, we literally would just walk the blocks. You would just walk on any given day. Just, you don't even have a destination. You're gonna see 15 people. You're gonna stop here. You're gonna shoot hoops on this block. You're gonna rap on this block. You're just gonna chop it up on another one. And all of that was just gone. And so that's kind of how I created the song. And then, like I said, it just took on a life of its own. I looked up and it was it was everywhere. I got professors calling me saying, hey, I show this to my class every year. Will you come lecture up here? And you know what I mean? And it's opened a ton yeah. of doors. My wife calls it the gift that keeps on giving um, <laughs> because it's it never stops. The Museum of History and Industry put it in a capsule And the idea was someone can open that capsule uh, 50 years from now, a hundred years from now and see what the hood used to look like. So yeah, sometimes you don't know what you're creating. I was really Mm -hmm. frustrated. And it was also a conversation I was having with a lot of people like Mm -hmm. in the hood. That's all we were talking about. I'm just, man, bro, the hood don't look right. Like it's just, we're just kind of talking about it. And after a while I'm like, yo, I got to write about this. And on the project that it was on, it wasn't, like a main song. I had no desire to put it out like as a single. It's kind of like a beast died song. I'm like, okay, we're gonna put this out, have this on there. I don't know if people will feel it. And lo and behold, people loved it folks is moving us around just like an experience. The ain't the same. The South, ain't the same. And all around the world, I see the same, same thing. Hurting people like cattle, man, I swear it's so strange. Ticket signs don't change minds, they laughing at
0: our pain. Thinking
2: about time capsules, right? And thinking about as we are celebrating 50 and we're looking ahead, what do you imagine as you look ahead to the next 50? And what does that legacy look like as you continue to perpetuate it
1: forward? I would love to build a a cultural arts, a Zimbabwean or African music cultural arts center in the northwest, um, but out south, not in the city. I want to go south. an um, area. You know, um, I'm being honest with where we are, um, not where we should be. Right, and so um, I think both as as Black people in the Northwest, and we're talking gentrification in this moment, you have to play offense and defense. So, Africa Town to me is us playing defense, right? It's us putting our claim down and going, "Nah, we're not leaving the city. We are right here. We mm-hmm. have a stake. We should be here, and we need to do that." Defense wins championships, but so do points. And so, our South, we got to start building, right? And a part of that building is stuff like this. And so I want to do some stuff to honor my mother and father. Um, I'd like to connect a lot of this music back to people of color. Um, It has been something that white people have embraced, which I think is dope. Um, But I want to see people of all races and nationalities embrace it because I think given the right opportunity, they will. Um, Everyone loves good music, right? They just need the right platforms and opportunities to do that. So my goal is to be able to build that, is to make create opportunities for young kids to be able to learn this music, to continue to bring African artists over to America. Even with my new album, it's a bridge. That's what I call it. It's a bridge, right? It's a bridge from the hood to the village. Right. And I am trying to get these worlds that want to connect to finally have a way to connect. And so there's a power in story. I think my gift as a lyricist and as an MC is to tell stories is to create stories and I'm hoping, legacy-wise, not just me. I mean, my biggest part of my legacy, I'm hoping, is my daughter, right? That's that's who I leave, right? So legacy-wise, yeah, it's her and the next generation and mm-hmm. unity as well. Unity amongst the Black community. If we can come together, anything's possible. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So let us in South
2: Africa Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: The Living Legacies series is produced by Northwest Folklife and Jack Straw Cultural Center. This podcast was made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts, Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, and individual contributors, with support from Jack Straw Cultural Center. To learn more, go to nwfolklife.org. Thanks for listening. That's good,